You know, one of the wonderful things about this church that uh, I think stands above many others and one of the things that attracted Kelly and I to here um, was the fact that they value the, the question, right? To understand something. And this is what Grace Talk is all about. We seek to understand what the Word says, find the biblical truth, and how do we apply it in our lives. In one sense, we're always asking questions. What is it that I believe? Why do I believe it? How to live it? Then how to share it. And so that's really the focus of what we're going to do today. For those of you that are new, about three to four times a year, we do this um, event called Grace Talk, and we'll do that this morning. And so how this works is that there will be a number of questions, uh, I think three or four, we're still figuring out <laughs> that today, um, <laughs> that have been curated and collected from you, the congregation, uh, that is relevant to what's going on in our lives today. And so uh, we're going to uh, ask those questions of our pastors and we're going to have them kind of lead us into thinking these things through, through a biblical framework and really help us understand how we then can apply it to our lives today and, and be strong in that. Okay? So without further ado, why don't we go ahead and get started? By the way, this is Brett Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay. So shameless plug number one. Um, my name is Brett. I, I head up the uh, community groups here. So uh, if you're interested in being in a community group or being a community group leader, come see me, okay? So... Um, Anyway, end of shameless plug. So we'll go from there. And, and do you want to talk at all about your desire to be a lounge singer? No. Can I have the microphone, yeah. please? Yeah. <laughs> now, he's partial to the song Valare. Yeah. yeah. But that's another yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's got the... He's Come got see the, me afterwards. He's dressed like one. That's right. Valare. Yeah. All right. So um, if we can get the first question up there, Billy. And this question is for... Um, Pastor Ken and Ken, this one is very relevant, obviously. Um, the recent seminar on sexuality was very helpful in knowing what the Bible says on the subject, as well as how to answer questions. However, I find myself getting angry at how far the culture has developed. I've even experienced a bitterness at people who flaunt their sexuality, wearing it like a badge of honor. How do I balance against perversion and yet for still loving my neighbor? tough question it's a great question and it's one like you said we're all really dealing with i i want to i i understand the spirit of the question but i I would want to modify it a little bit because i don't think there's a conflict between standing against perversion and loving your neighbor like they're two opposite things i think the better question is how do i love my neighbor well as i stand against perversion right so it's a it's 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 looking at it like I'm always going to have to love my neighbor and even as I stand against perversion. And the question then becomes, how do I do that? And that's where it's an art, not a science. And, and I'm going to hopefully address some of that a little bit. We may, we may parse that out a little bit. My initial answer to anybody and to myself, and, I'm, and I really I speak to myself in this because I'm one who is angered and frustrated by the direction our culture has devolved as well. But my initial answer is with gentleness, respect, and self-control. I mean, we sang the song, Jesus Strong and Kind, and you think of Jesus as all the power of God, and yet he was kind, gentle, self-controlling, and respectful, even when he was in conflict with people. And he found himself in conflict with people frequently. But the, diff- the conflicts were of different natures based on what the circumstances were. So we have to look at that. 
um, gentle and reasonable response, a gentle and reasonable response in a stressful situation is what, is what gentleness is all about. Um, Philippians 4, 5, Paul says, let your gentleness, in the NIV, the ESV says, reasonableness, be known to everyone. And that is getting into a stressful situation and not losing your cool. And that requires training. It requires um, practice. And you have to be thinking about, how am I going to deal with this stressful situation before it arises? Because I guarantee you, the stressful situations are going to be coming at you more and more often. This is a reality of our culture. And if you're not ready, if you're not ready to deal with it, you're going to either deal with it with one of two ways. It's going to be fight or flight. And neither of those are really going to be helpful in the mission that we have. So I want to address those. Some of the circumstances call for a more public stance. For example, the recent uh, drag queen uh, event controversy that happened here in our county. Very public. Um, And no matter how forceful you need to be, such as speaking frankly to government leaders, speaking authoritatively in front of the media, responding to the taunts from the other side, if you will, you should always do that with gentleness, respect, and self-control. Now, it's going to look different in that environment than it would be on a one-on-one environment, but it's always going to be gentle, respectful, and self-controlled. Uh, Proverbs 15 verse 1, Proverbs 15 15, verse 1, a lot of you know this one. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word does what? Stirs up anger. And so we have the power and the ability to stir up anger if we want to. And you're supposed to be able to be self-controlled in those environments so that you don't stir up anger, so that you can turn away the wrath. It's not going to, your responsibility is an excellent guidance in this particular issue. He says in um, chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. I mean, that's it. It's right there. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Doesn't that describe a lot of the conflict that we have in the culture? Absolutely. Paul doesn't say, be gentle if they repent, and if they're nice. He says, rather, be gentle so that they might repent. And, you know, we're, like I said, we're, we're not in a, a, a time anymore where you can just live and let live. You can't run away from it. Nor can you go headlong into it um, with no care for what's going to happen. It's like going into a battle against a stronger enemy and not thinking, not being strategic. You want to choose your battles. You want to live to fight another day. You want to live to win the war, even if you have to retreat or lose a battle. And so God in his providence has chosen to make our stay here in Egypt a little bit less comfortable than it may have been in years past. And I think it's because he's making it more and more evident to this world, to us, that this world is not our home. I think maybe we in our culture have gotten a little too happy and fat in this culture, like the Israelites in Egypt. My goodness, you can't even trust Disney movies anymore. Come on. 
That's, that's a sign. I think God in His providence is wanting to say, Church, wake up. Wake up. So, choose your battles wisely. Um, have to play the long game. The truth of God's power in your life has been put there. Uh, the, the power of God in your life is there and it needs to be put to the test. And I think God is doing that through providentially. He's, that this culture is putting it to the test. And that test is in order for unbelievers to see the supernatural origins of your faith. That's the bottom line. God wants to be glorified by people seeing how you deal with this kind of stress. Are you going to be gentle? Are you going to be self-controlled? Are you going to be patient through this? And, you know, we need to be prepared for the persecution. We should expect it, and frankly, we should practice. You should practice not losing your temper. Practice not being sarcastic. Practice not resorting to name-calling. You can be led by the Holy Spirit to stand for truth in a gentle way so that God may be glorified. And I'm going to give four brief examples, and I'll shut up. (laughs) Okay. How might you show your good deeds while refusing to use someone's preferred pronouns? Have you practiced that? I'm not going to do that. But I've got to figure out a way to do it with kindness and politeness. How might you show your good deeds when a male is using the women's room or in the, men's, or the women's locker room? How might you show your good deeds when you're called a bigot or hateful because you don't condone same-sex marriage? How might you show your good deeds when you're unfairly stereotyped because of your skin color? All those things are cultural realities. What are you going to do? Yeah. So, good stuff. I, I like the, the fact you talked about that we need to be prepared and ready yeah. and strategic how we do practice. that. You know, I don't know if any of you can comment on this, but any personal experiences where this has come up that you can share with us about yeah. how you handled it? And, and then I guess the follow-up is that, you had mentioned too, Ken, is that we just, sometimes we just can't wait. Things we're going to have to be, um, take the initiative. So sure. what are the guiding principles to help us understand to be reactive versus proactive? Yeah, I'll throw out an example that has occurred in, in our culture. Uh, many of you know Pastor MacArthur out in California. He's had an ongoing debate or conflict with Governor Newsom. And so he issued a letter of rebuke, a public letter of rebuke of Governor Newsom and his endorsement of abortion. So I would say, you know, many would had called MacArthur out and say, hey, that was, was that right? Was he being, you know, nice, so to speak? I would argue that was a loving thing for Pastor MacArthur to do, is to call Governor Newsom out and call him out on his sin. So, you know, that's an example where loving our neighbor can call a very harsh word, but to, to Ken's point, it was under control. It was done in such a, such a way that he was not uh, unnecessarily harsh, but he was truthful in, in how he went about it. So... Yeah, and I yeah. think one of the challenges with this is very often we think, um, how will somebody receive this will determine if it was done in gentleness. In other words, if they, for example, when they see that letter that was sent out, they go, well, I wouldn't have done that, so that wasn't very gentle, gentle to me. You have to be very careful when it comes to that because there's a spectrum certainly on which we'll determine gentleness. Like gentleness in New York City is very different than gentleness in North Forsyth. Okay? What are you talking about? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Just yeah. take it easy, Pastor yeah. Ken. Yeah, yeah. So the, so the idea is just to be very careful. So fundamentally, 
you've got to ask yourself, what is the spirit in which I'm doing this? Then maybe have some other people look at a letter like that to see if you are. But whatever you do, don't surrender to other people's perspective of if they think you are loving. Listen, that just, it's not possible. When you bow to that type of thing, you're going to be twisted up and you start getting fear of man, feel what people think, and then you'll start allowing people to have an authority over you. You can get the pastors involved, friends involved, praying for you, looking at stuff or how you're reacting. If you think maybe I'm going too far, uh, with somebody and talking, ask somebody to look at the interaction, hang out with you, speak to that. Just be very, very careful because the enemy can tie you up. Let's remember that when those things were being written, Paul was also the one who wrote in 1 Corinthians 5 talking about putting the guy out of the church and he wasn't even there. And people could say, well, that's not very gentle and loving. Well, no, it's absolutely gentle and loving because of what was going on. It was exactly what was needed. So the context is very different with Newsom. He's a public figure. John MacArthur's a public pastor. That's perfectly appropriate. Now, if it was John MacArthur's neighbor, ah, that'd be messed up. Don't write a public letter about your neighbor. Go talk to your neighbor. Yeah. So we just have to use a lot of wisdom. And if you're not sure... Or if a lot of people around you are giving you funny looks, you probably need to get some counsel in your life because highly emotional situations like this demand somebody else to kind of see into what you're doing and speak into your life because very often emotions are like sliding boards. We start with one place and we're at another place before we even know it. So I'd say that um, just be very careful. You don't submit to the definition of somebody else, especially somebody else that you are needing to address. Dan, you mentioned counsel, and I know that you were heavily involved. I think Pastor Marty was too in this public stance the church took at this recent drag event that Ken referenced in Forsyth County. Can you share with us some of the counsel you gave the members here of the church that attended that counsel? I think that would be helpful as we look at being intentional with how we're to to respond and react, especially in a public setting like that. Yeah, I think to Ken's point is that uh, lost people do lost things. Foolish people do foolish things. So to, to go into that thinking somebody should act like I would act or think like I would think is just not appropriate. See beyond the moment. See the fact that these are lost people. This is an opportunity to love people, whether or not they receive that love at all, and also to protect children. So the reason why we stood up is we said as a church, as a body of believers and calling believers in the community, is because we want to protect children. We want to uphold the virtue of women. And we want to help men know how to lead well. So when you have men dressing like women, accentuated body parts, it's a mockery to women. So protect kids, uphold the virtue of women, and help men lead. Those are biblical virtues. And that is when we push on those things. We're actually loving people in our community. When we're lifting those things up, we're calling people to that standard. That is loving them. You're doing what's in their best interest, even if they don't acknowledge it. But you can do it in a gentle, respectful, forceful way. Yeah, let me give you an example. So we had some people who called from, I think it was Hall County, like a couple busloads of people who were somewhat militant Christians. And they were like, hey, we'll come on down there. And we were like, no, 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 you stay up there. Uh, Because we really didn't didn't need that. So all we did... Well, why don't you need that? 
because they were coming down and their plan was they were going to have all these communication earpieces and they were going to stage this and do this and block off this. And what was was a drag show to community center. So what happened is we just bought all the tickets and we were going to put men in the seats. And so effectively... Would there ever be a situation where that would be called for? You know, a lot more mobilization and action and all like that. Only Perhaps with, after, within the law. Yeah, within, within the, law, the law. And maybe, maybe this, this happens 20 times. And on the 20th time, that kind of thing might be called for. Yeah. It's look at the situation. Under these circumstances, this was the first time we've ever had this circumstance. Yeah. And we were going to try to be measured. And that's the point. You want to live to fight another day. Yeah. And so you don't bring out all of your ammo... And fire it, you know, ready, fire, aim. It's the long game, right? Yeah, yeah. it's the yeah. long game. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think it's also important to keep perspective that this, that the war is won. God wins. Mm. And so, you know, we're just, you know, think about World War II and D-Day. Once D-Day was successful, the war was, the outcome of the war was more or less determined, right? But they were dealing with all the battles that, that would eventually come to that outcome. That's what we're dealing with. The war is won. God wins, but we have these battles, these skirmishes that we have to deal with. And, but understand me, I, I get you, and I totally agree. When I say the war, I mean the war for people's souls, the war for yeah. winning souls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is a war that we're, we're that's, the, that's the end game. We want to be able to provi- proclaim the gospel to people. And so I can get into, it, it's like I train our, our mission teams. I said, you guys, don't argue with people. You can get into arguments all day long. I had a couple of Mormons come to my door the other day, and I could have gotten into an argument with them, but instead I asked them about the basis of their justification. I asked them questions, and basically it got to where they were saying, well, I hope I get to go to heaven. And I said, how do you know? Well, I've done my best. Have you done your best? You know, I go right to the gospel and around that argument because I'm trying to proclaim the righteousness of, of Christ and not myself in that, right? It, it, it's all about trying to proclaim the gospel. And if I can use this circumstance to proclaim the gospel in some way, then I want to leverage the circumstances so that I can do that. I don't want to win an argument and then not be able to proclaim the gospel. Right, great. Thank you. Yeah, I think we all face this and it's going to get worse. So now's the time to get prepared. Now's the time to be ready. And I would encourage you to reach out to the elders here, the pastors, or, or people here in this church. Like Ken said, practice these things. Be prepared. Don't, don't wait for it to come to you. Be ready when it, ha- when it comes. All right. Thanks, guys. Let's move to the next one here. Uh, this is one for Pastor Dan. And I think there may be a secondary in here one as well. How much doubt can a Christian have until he or she begins to doubt whether or not they are a true believer? That's... Uh, one I think some of us struggle with even today, Dan. Yeah, I think that uh, every Christian comes a point in their life, they go, do I believe enough? Uh, I think, though, this question, we have to reorient the question because if you notice we're talking about how much doubt can a Christian have, it's almost analogous to a cup, the idea that, that there's some definite point of faith I should have, and if I don't have that, if I have any point of doubt or this much doubt, then somehow maybe I'm lost. I think that's a a bad way to phrase it because you will always have some level of doubt. So if you're always chasing, do I have too much doubt? 
you're going to be insecure, you're going to be frustrated, and you're going to be on a journey that you were never meant to be on trying to satisfy that. So I'd rather liken it to the idea of a walk, a direction. The cup has the imagery of perfection, how much. A walk has the idea of direction. What's the direction of my life? Are the discernible signs, credible signs, that I am trusting in Christ? And what are those? So let's do this. Let's rephrase the question. We're going to put it on the screen for you. I think it's a little bit better. What are the clear markers that identify an individual who possesses saving faith? What are the clear markers? This is, we could go on a long time, but this is very, very important. What is it that must I possess to show that I am in possession of saving faith? The first thing I want to say is you can absolutely know that you have saving faith. If you look over in 1 John chapter 5, 13, that's the reason why the letter of 1 John was written. And he says this, I write these things to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John says you can know and in the test, in the, in the letter of John, there's four particular tests that are unique to their situation that he is writing to. But I would say in general, not, you're not facing all the things they were facing. In general, in Romans 15, 4, it talks about two qualities that I think I'd like to expand a little bit to help you think about. In 15, 4, it says, as I turn there briskly with one hand. Don't expand too much. We're yes. on a time clock here. <laughs> okay. And the pressure. 15.4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I think Paul is positioning that idea of having endurance within the category, I would say, of subjectively, meaning that I endure in the situation I'm in, that that endurance has the idea that I am moving forward and desiring Christ. The second part of the encouragement of the scriptures is the objective, meaning that do I see the quality and characteristics of following after Christ in my life? And so I would say this, and you can go out and look at this more extensively in the blog. I wrote a blog under on our website, Media, under blog, and I kind of make up a fictitious guy by the name of Frank and walk through this. But I would say this. Anybody who possesses saving faith has a desire to follow Christ. That's one of the credible marks do you desire to follow Christ, even in the midst of your struggles, even in the midst of your doubts? And why would I say this idea of desire? Well, if you turn back just a few pages in Romans chapter 7, we enter into this a dynamic that Paul was going through. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being in verse 22. But the argument starts in verse 15. He says, that what I do, I don't want to do. But that what I do, I don't do. He finds himself struggling. And yet the entire time of his struggle, he never comes to the place of saying Jesus isn't enough. Same thing with the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000. Everybody leaves. 
Jesus says, will you leave too? And they say, what? Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, subjectively, in your life, you will always desire Christ if you possess saving faith. It doesn't mean you won't have a moment in which you wonder about Christ. It doesn't mean that you won't betray Christ and not trust him in your life. But a true follower of Christ will never abandon the worth and value of who Jesus Christ is. And why is that? That is that way because God has given you his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit always craves Christ. To make much of Christ. And again, you can weaken in that, but you will never deny that. You will never say Christ is not the Messiah. You will never say Christ is not the Lord. You will not do like one professor did, say that you can profess Christ one moment and then reject Christ and still be a believer. Turn your back on him, disavow him, and you're still a believer. That is wrong. That is simply not true because the Holy Spirit in you has given you the Spirit He wants Christ. So subjectively, that's true. That's a credible marker. And we see that in the life of Paul. Objectively, where it talks about encouragement of the scriptures there, we see in the end of verse 24, chapter 7, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Paul was from Tarsus. We know that from Acts 22. Uh, There was a unique consequence if you were convicted of murder in uh, Tarsus. They would take the body of the individual that had been murdered and they would affix it to the individual who had committed the murder. They would tie that body onto that person, torso to torso, leg to leg, arm to arm. And they would send that convicted murderer into the barren land. And they would use a phrase... The idea of the body of death. And as that individual on the back who is deceased would decay, the living person would decay. It was a horrible way to die. That's the exact phrase that Paul uses in this passage. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I have a feeling the person writing that question kind of has that feeling. How can I get out of this? Why am I not better? Why can't I follow Christ more closely? And notice what Paul says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Objectively, Jesus Christ went to the cross, was crucified, buried, rose again. So I put my faith in what he has done. And because of that, I obey Christ. If I believe that to be true, I obey him. He's cut free the cords, but I still live with my humanness, my inclination to not trust Christ. But I've been set free. So subjectively, I desire the Lord. Objectively, my faith is in Christ. And I live with the tension. And Paul says, So, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So in other words, I'm simultaneously a sinner yet a saint. You'll never escape that dynamic while you are away from Christ. But if you desire Christ, if you see obedience in your life, although not perfect, and you can point that out and you see the walk of your life 
growing over time to be more and more to be like Christ, you're being formed in his image, you can have confidence. You will have doubt. But you can have confidence as you see the marks of the character and priority moving in your life. And if you want to explore this more, I encourage you, talk to somebody about this. Because you need to learn how to navigate this because you'll never be free from doubt. But you can be absolutely sure that you're saved by his grace. Yeah, that's good stuff. I think doubt is something that we all have. Thank you for helping us well, clarify that. Can Go I ahead, ask Ken. a question? I deliberately yeah. plant to doubt in those people I was talking to this week. I was trying to get them to answer the question, if you were to stand before God in judgment and he were to ask you, why should I let you into, I use their word, celestial kingdom, but heaven, what would, he, what would you say? And took him forever, but finally it was, well, because I have been obedient and I have done my best and all of that like that. How should you answer that question? Yeah, I would say that in that context, with people knowing that they're Mormons, now I move into that place of addressing that issue. So in answering that, let's imagine a, that you're an talking... An actual believer, though. How should an, an actual believer yeah, answer Yeah, a that? believer would answer that saying that I have placed my trust in Christ. In other words, I don't trust my own justification. I don't trust my own effort. There's nothing I've done, whether going to church, having parents that are Christians, or being baptized, that can merit anything in the eyes of God. Only Christ's life, death, and sacrifice is sufficient. There's only one name under heaven. So I've placed my trust in Christ. I believe him. And because I've done that, God has told me in his word that he gives me the righteousness of Christ. There's this exchange. Jesus is treated as if he's a sinner, although he's never sinned. So I, by faith, can be treated as if I am righteous, even though I'm not in myself. And that is the great exchange. That's the good news of the gospel. So the answer about, I've obeyed, I follow Jesus, I avoid sin, does that not come into that answer at all? Yeah, I would say that underneath, when somebody says that, uh, you don't see the amount of hubris that's in that. In other words, that I've done this. I've yet to hear anybody who would say that go, I'm willing to stand before God and say, thanks, but no thanks. I really did it. No one would ever, but effectively, that's what they're saying. Correct. Effectively, they're saying, this is the whole argument of Hebrews 10. Where Hebrews 10 talks about crucifying Christ all over again. The people who've come to trust in Christ and then go back to the old covenant. The argument is being made, if you go back to the old covenant, you're effectively saying Jesus should have been put to death because he wasn't sufficient. In other words, him dying on the cross is very noble, very, very, it's incredibly arrogant. And so that's the battle on which that's won in that conversation. Yeah. So doubt certainly is something we all deal with. Thank you, Dan, for helping us clarify that. Doubt kind of plays uh, a role in this third question that Pastor Marty will do. So if we can transition to that one, please. Okay, Pastor Marty. In Luke 7, 18 through 20, John the Baptist sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he was the Messiah. If John knew who Jesus was and baptized him, why did he even ask this question? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, the reality is uh, having true faith does not mean that we're not going to struggle with doubt. And so we, here we have a biblical example of, of John or his disciples struggling with doubt. So let's start by reading the verse. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, 
or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to them, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So the short answer is, there's really two possibilities. One is John the Baptist was struggling with doubt at this point, or it could be that John knew that death was near, and these two disciples were struggling with doubt, and he wanted them to engage Jesus on the question, you know, if he was the Messiah. So, so why did John or his disciples move into this period of uncertainty regarding Jesus as the Messiah? First, the Gospels are clear that John did not doubt when he baptized Jesus as he kicked off his three-year ministry. John one twenty nine says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the, the sins of the world. So John, at that point, when he baptized Jesus, clearly knew that Jesus was the Messiah and professed that. But to understand John's disciples having doubt, we need to remember the circumstances around Luke chapter 7. John was imprisoned by Herod and Tippus because John was critical of an unlawful marriage that he had with his half-brother's wife, Herodias. Being in prison, he may have been confused. Uh, it may confuse John and his disciples. They probably did not expect the forerunner of Jesus to be treated in this way, expecting the thunder and lightning of, of the Messiah's judgment. Because that was one of the things that, that John talked about, is, is the kingdom of God is near, and, and talked about the Messiah's judgment. So yet, Jesus had not brought that final judgment yet, right? And still is yet to come. In fact, the world continued to be upside down. For the righteous men such as John were suffering and wicked men such as Herod were, were prospering. Although Israel had developed expectations for the Messiah from reading Zephaniah chapter 3 and other Old Testament prophecies, they were conflating the first and second coming of the Messiah, of Jesus. This influenced Israel's vision of the Messiah's work. Israel seemed to be expecting a warrior riding in on a stallion with a sword of judgment the shock and awe, so to speak. Instead, they're witnessing a Savior riding in on the donkey to bring salvation and peace to those who were his. The Messiah must suffer before the kingdom comes into its fullness. And we see that in Isaiah chapter 53. So how, I think it's important to really look at how did Jesus respond to the disciples. So let's read Luke chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus did not rebuke these messengers or these disciples of John, or John himself. But he told John, report these various miracles he was performing, all which characterized the Messiah's ministry, according to the prophet Isaiah. You can look at Isaiah 35, 42, 61. Those were the miracles that Jesus was pointing to. However, what's also interesting is Jesus does not reference the, the verses in Isaiah referring to the Messiah's judgment and vengeance. In other words, Jesus is saying to John and his disciples, 
I am actively doing what Scripture says about the Messiah, and my miracles prove it. But the final judgment has not yet come. In other words, he is the Messiah, and he will set all things right, but the Messiah judgment had not come yet. John and his disciples were called to wait in patient faith for all to be accomplished. So us being on this side of the cross, we have the advantage to be able to understand the difference between the first and second coming of of Jesus. And I'm going to close with reading Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13, when the Messiah, when Jesus returns. This is the, the lightning and thunder, the shock and awe, so to speak. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what he had done. Thanks, Pastor Marty. You had mentioned that John and or his disciples seemed to have doubts or uncertainties. Where in Scripture, and this is open for all of you, where do we see in Scripture's other characters having doubt, and what can we learn from it? David. Go ahead. Lot. I mean, just kind of go through it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially the Old Testament, Ken. Where would we see in the Old Testament where we see this wrong expectation or doubts? Um... Even Elijah kind of had a wrong expectation. Mm-hmm. You know, he, was, he has this great victory over the prophets of Baal on the mountain. And, I mean, it's like the most awesome, great story. And immediately after that, Jezebel says, I'm out to get you. And he runs away. Yeah. And, he's, and he's having a Way pity party. Way to be a party. man, right? Yeah. 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 And, and it's like, I'm the only one left. <laughs> There's nobody else but yeah. me. And God says, no, I got 10,000 and not bowed the knee to Baal. So he needed a little bit of a wake-up call. And I think right. maybe that's a little bit of what's going on with John is that, hey, and it's a gentle wake-up call. It was a gentle wake-up call for, Isaac, for Elijah and, and John the Baptist like Elijah, who was the appropriately Elijah. enough, yeah, appropriately. Uh, maybe need a little wake-up call. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it could be also that and that G, that John was the forerunner. So messengers were asking messengers, messengers. He goes, "Okay, you two come here, go ask him this." In other words, he knows, as Marty said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna be dead." He, he anticipates the end has come, so he wants to now hand off the reality of who Jesus is. So he tees up these guys. He doesn't just say, hey, yeah, he is. Just trust me, just trust me. Because he knows he's out soon. Mm -hmm. So as a forerunner, he's constantly pointing to Christ. So he's practically doing that in the moment. And then then Christ, when he speaks about John, he talks about his role. What did you expect to see? This guy wasn't shaking out in the wilderness. He wasn't living with kings, living it up. This guy's a prophet. So in other words, he reinforces John's role as well. So there could be even an interplay of both of those. You think of, of um, some of the practical aspects of we tend to expect God to do what we expect him to do, right? We, so it's a we wrong put, expectation. Yeah, we put certain expectations on him. I'm going to be blessed by God if this happens. 
right? And so you think, oh, I'm, I've received blessing today. And then if you, something bad happens, then it's, oh, I received a curse today. You know, God is, God is frowning on me. When that's not necessarily how it works. Um, even the bad things that happen in your life are there in order to test you and to see where you are. Kind of like what I was talking about in the first question. Right. Yeah, and I think, you know, dealing with this perishable body, all those examples these guys gave, whenever stress is on us, you know, we, we often can move into a period of doubt or, you know, a, a period of where sure. we forget a fundamental truth. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. Some, an, an application we could take away from this is we need God's word. Yep. And we need other believers to help us whenever those trials and those things are pressing in on us. Because they can often take us to a place where we're doubting things that we should not doubt. Yeah, I think that's really good. I, I, my sense is that's why it's important that we have fellowship with fellow believers. That when we face these doubts... We have relationships and friendships that we feel comfortable that we can say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Help me see in the Bible where I need to overcome these doubts. And so I have the right expectation. I'm not going to... I'm, but, but, but. I'm, I'm chewing on <laughs> yeah. a bit. Ready, as go. <laughs> uh, and, and this is the reason why. Because yesterday is when the pastors met for praying and uh, Pastor Larry said something that is incredibly important on this point. Uh, the worldliness is certainly going to bars, getting drunk, and sleeping around. But worldliness is also thinking that there's a better blessing outside of the gospel and God. In other words, we have a tendency to go, I'm praying for this, I'm praying for this. When it doesn't happen, we fixate on our answers so much that we go, I'm I'm looking to be blessed, and that's the blessing, the answer. When God doesn't answer, our anxiety goes up. Remember, God is the blessing. The gospel's the blessing. You're looking for an answer. So you have to pull back to go, listen, what more can I want other than God is giving me himself? He's putting his spirit in me. So that lessens, I'd like this job or I'd like to live here, I'd like to do this. That lessens that tension because now you have a perspective. But the world is going to want you to have this small perspective of you want what you want and you want it now. And that's why we need other believers around us going, hey, remember, God's the gospel. The blessing of the gospel is that we get Christ. You don't have these other things. Find your joy in Christ, not in the answer you want. Right. That's good. Well, I think that's uh, a good wrap-up for what we should do. Any other comments or questions? What a great job you did with these these animals. Yes, let's give them a hand. (laughs) I still want to say something, but I won't because I'll have to answer for that later, right? So, um, He's anyway, right in, yeah, he? that's right. Um, so, um, I hope you've, uh, been edified here. I, I, I know that God has been glorified for sure. As we seek to answer these questions that really we all have to some degree. And uh, I would just encourage you to keep leaning into your faith, keep leaning into the word of God, uh, keep leaning into the fellowship, uh, of the, that we have here with our brothers and sisters. God has put the church here for a reason. And the answers to these questions are found in what the church is, is designed to do. So uh, we'll go ahead and close here with prayer. And uh, we'll do the, uh, we're not doing the... Um... No, Zach has it. Zach, Zach has it from here? Okay. So why don't you join me in prayer and we'll, we'll close this out. Father, thank you for this chance to come together once again to worship you today in, in song. And, and Lord, worship you in a way that um, is maybe a little bit different, Lord, as we... Um, rest upon the, the beauty of your word and what it means to us. 
Uh, Lord, you, you never um, keep us from wanting to ask questions. Those are good. That's how we reason with you. So, Lord, thank you for the answers that Pastor Ken and Pastor Marty and Pastor Dan have taken the time to help us understand. Lord, may it uh, fuel us to see you in more glory. May it activate our hearts and our hands uh, to worship you and to serve each other. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would continue to bless everyone here in this fellowship as we move out into the rest of this day. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.